HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by 360 Cookware. Their stainless steel cookware uses vapor technology to cook better tasting, more nutritional food. To learn more and receive 20% off, click their logo on our website, heritageradionetwork.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, hey, you're listening to Let's Eat In. It's Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Arroway, and happy, happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I hope you're enjoying um, maybe laying low and uh, having lots of soup at home on this very brisk, chilly winter Monday in Brooklyn. So today we're talking about, uh, we have a couple of guests who are very knowledgeable about all things food, food movement related. And I'm so thrilled. Um, in the station we have Meredith Mazaluski. Hey. Well, Mojaleski, but it's very Maja, close. <laughs> and yes, on the phone, because she's uh, feeling a little under the weather today, we have author Robin Schulman, whose recent book is called Eat the City, a tale of fishers, foragers, butchers, farmers, poultry minders, sugar refiners, keen cutters, beekeepers, wine keepers, and wi- winemakers and brewers who built New York. Hi, Robin. <laughs> hey, Kathy. Good to talk with you. <laughs> so, um, okay, so the reason they're here together is because Meredith is involved in a great new startup, and it's just for authors right now. Um, I have so many authors on the show who are in the midst of their book tour or something like that. And um, Together is the name of the company, and it's basically a fan sourcing tool to let you bring uh bring crowds to events, book readings, and so forth that you're having. Um, Tell us a little bit more about that, Mary. Sure. So Together is, basically, it it makes it easy for anyone to put on a successful book event, author event. Um, It connects, it helps that authors to connect directly with their readers all over the country in every type of community. So um, we really believe in the importance of book events and in 
in the bigger kind of context of culture, mm-hmm. um, we feel like they're um, they help to spark imagination and um, you know bring creativity and and help bring new ideas to to anyone to mm-hmm. communities and groups. People help to help you find cool people that you are interested. You know things that you're interested thing. in. Yeah. yeah. So um, so really, this helps to make those happen in, in a much easier way, and it kind of helps to guarantee an audience right. um, wherever the author. And wherever the host wants the author to come to, because um, we work sort of on a Kickstarter model in that the author and the readers um, agree on a goal ahead mm-hmm. of time, and whether that goal is for a hundred attendees, right? It could be it be a number of attendees that um, pay for tickets. It can be a number of uh, book sales, and it could be even a free RSVPs depending on the kind of event. Um, so we have the ability for authors to do um, local events, to do travel events where they kind of um, help, you know, they, w- they want to raise a little bit more money so they can help to pay for some of the right. costs for travel. But also we have the ability to do um, virtual events. So you mm-hmm. can have like a, you can have any, anything from, from like the biggest, you know, auditorium style, um, you know, kind of alternative event um, to a bookstore to even a small kind of Skype or Google Hangout with like a, a book club for 10 mm-hmm. people. So it really creates this very um, personal, connected experience for authors and right. readers. So, and I love the uh, the name together. Really implies that it's going to be a personal connection, mm-hmm. and uh, together the the crowd or the you know crowdsourcing uh, power will create the event. But you know it can be so um, impersonal sometimes doing these crowdfunding or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And you probably do have a lot in common with somebody who's supporting the same type of books and and whatever it is projects. So, um, yeah, and uh, on that note, you're having this uh, event to kick off the uh, Translit, Public yeah. Translit Commuter Book Club. Yes. Yeah, actually, we did have one event already. It was okay. back in November. Um, it was a great event um, with uh, Andy Greenberg, who wrote a book about um, privacy and um, uh, WikiLeaks, and it was a, it was a really really great event. It was kind of about the the revolution of privacy and um, uh, anonymous and and the hacker, you know, people who who do that kind of privacy and coding. So it's uh, it was a great event. People were really into the book. They loved that they had the ability to do this very personal um, discussion with the author mm-hmm. about everything that he did, and so. You know this next uh, this next one with Robin. We're really excited about it's a com- about a completely different topic, but it's related to New York. Um, the whole reason that we started the Public Translate Commuter Book Club um, is yeah. because we were actually um, inspired by something very similar that happened in Seattle, um, so that everyone who was kind of reading on their commutes together could um, they could see who else was reading the same book, and then at the end of the month or whatever, they would go and meet and and talk about the book together. So. Um, we thought we could do that, but make it even better by having the author actually come in and, and speak to the readers. Absolutely. How cool is it that Robin's coming to the book club meeting um, for Eat the City? Um, are you looking forward to that, Robin? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I love the idea of a commuter book club. I have one time on the subway seen somebody reading my book. <laughs> um, but it's always exciting to see somebody reading your book, and it's just exciting to, to bring people who are interested in this stuff together in this way and kind of have a, informal drinks and be yeah. able to talk about it together. So this is your first book, correct, Eat the City? Yes, it is, yeah. And you've been a reporter for the Washington Post. You've written for the New York Times and so many other. Um, you're you're a pedigreed journalist, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, I, I I'm a journalist. 
What inspired you to to start, uh, you know, delve into this topic? Because uh, let me just uh, back up for those who have not, you know, uh, flipped through the book yet. Um, it's wonderful. I it tells the the story about you know a lot of people think that um, DIY, you know, this urban gardening stuff, honey, you know, beekeeping that we see these days um, is this newfangled trend. But actually, throughout the book, um, Robin proves that. This has been going on for centuries, and you get into such um, deep history about topics such as sugar and beer and meat and vegetables. Um, I love the story about the the Harlem um, vegetable garden and and just the evolution of that neighborhood and how the garden has or home gardening, not yeah backyard gardening has just survived throughout this uh, momentous history it's gone through. Mm. So that's what it's, I mean, and please go on. Um, So if I missed anything, but um, what inspired you to write this book? You know, I think the first idea for this book came when I first moved to New York City. It was it was the early 90s, and I came to New York to go to college, and I was living over the summer on the Lower East Side, and it was kind of a, a, a de- desolate neighborhood at that time on 4th Street between Avenue C and Avenue D, oh, partly wow. because there were so many is. vacant lots that people were oh. using to shoot up and trade drugs, and there were often gunshots on the block, <sighs> and uh, then people started cleaning it up, and and planting a garden there, and I kind of helped with the cleanup by um, by shoveling up syringes into heavy-duty garbage bags for a couple months. You and, got your green uh, At the end of that time, people were planting things, and I I slowly started to realize that it wasn't just that people wanted to create something pretty, but people actually wanted to eat, and they were planting vegetables and fruits and herbs. And they were also planting, uh, they also brought in roosters. And so, you know, this was the early 90s, and I was waking up in Manhattan to the roosters crow. So um, people were actually using those roosters because they they made a chicken soup at the end of that time. So I, I kind of slowly started to realize that these gardens that were cropping up all over that neighborhood were having a transformative effect. And people were starting to spend time out on the street and in the garden, and uh, it was really changing the feel of the place and mm-hmm. creating a community around around this food production. So I just started to wonder how else that had happened. It turned out in that very same neighborhood in the distant past, um, all the Jewish immigrants coming from Eastern Europe had moved into those tenement buildings and had brought um, chickens and roosters that they were keeping in in the air shafts and in the basements and even in their own apartments. And uh, they would have a ritual slaughterer come around once a week and, and slaughter the birds for the, the Shabbos dinner. So there's been this long history of people producing that same kind of food in that neighborhood, and I started to wonder about how else food production has transformed different places in the city. It turns out it's been pivotal to the economies of local neighborhoods and the city itself. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And um, a lot of people might um, call... You know this uh, trend today in urban farming and beekeeping is sort of elitist or yuppie concern. Something along those lines I hear all the time. And uh, throughout your book, it's actually utilitarian for so many people, and it was a survival skill to grow food, to to raise the roosters and chickens and so forth, as you mentioned. Um, 
So what would you, you know, what is your, what is your take on today's like kind of uh, uh, hobbyist gardeners who might be um, inspired by um, just taking up a green thumb? Do you think that that's like a really positive uh, a way that um, we're moving towards? I do think it's really positive. Um, you know, I think that there are so many different things converging right now that uh, more people are interested in in local food production than in the past. But my book really tries to show how this has been a constant thing. You know, through so many eras of the city's history, there have been people, immigrants and migrants, coming from hot agricultural productive places to the city and kind of producing food here and imposing their own vision of city life on the place where they're living. But also there's this new thing happening now where a lot of younger people are interested in having more control over the food they eat. Um, They're interested in creating something and sharing something and creating community around food and, and are investing in this. So it feels to me like several different strands are coming mm-hmm. together, and that's what creates a movement, yeah. and that's what creates change. It seems like one uh, kind of connective thread is that there's always um, this this element of uh, community and uh, working together and enjoying the fruits of your labor together because it's it's a team uh, it's a teamwork type of uh, endeavor. A lot of these things. Producing food can be a lot of work, yeah. and it's not something that you uh, eat by yourself. I was amazed. I love the chapter about sugar. Um, I have to admit that I'm not done with the book yet, but I just finished that one. And um, that, you know, you go from talking about this desolate, abandoned Domino Sugar Factory that we all know, you know, we all see. It's on Kent Street, you know, in Williamsburg, um, right on the waterfront. And then you go, to, uh, you know, segue into. This farmer, a Puerto Rican farmer in the city who has decided to grow sugarcane in his backyard and <laughs> is doing so quite successfully. Like, who would have thought? It's just so Yeah, funny. I was astonished at what he was doing when I found him. I couldn't believe that he was actually <laughs> succeeding in growing this tropical crop because the Bronx is not yet a tropical climate. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he, you- he, he, he tended these sugar plants. Actually, sugarcane requires 18 months to grow. And he would tend these plants throughout the winter in his apartment, which was luckily overheated, as are many New York apartments. And so at the end of the winter, when it started to get warmer outside, he would plant the cane in his community garden. So by the time I first met him, it was August, and he had this very thick stalk of sugar cane that was taller than I was, and he hacked it down with a machete, and he gave me sugar cane to suck. Um, so this, for him, kind of represented his past because he came from Puerto Rico as a kid. He actually worked on a sugar plantation from the time he was nine years old, and he did this very hard labor, harvesting sugar cane, then came to New York looking for a better life and kind of retirement from sugar cane at age 18. Um, but for him, this kind of represents the past and a way to have the past without the bitterness of it, just the sweetness of it in his garden. Um, But for me, as I learned more about the history of New York City and learned how pivotal sugar was in the growth of the city and how, you know, perhaps it's the the food industry with the greatest impact on the development of New York, for me, his story was really the story of the city itself. So I I was really glad to have found him and to have discovered that history. Yeah, that story kind of told um, me that uh, there's other, there's so many other reasons 
options and benefits that you can get from growing something. Um, obviously, we all know that we could grab a packet of sugar probably for free from a deli and, uh, you know, just buy a pound of sugar for, I don't know, $2. It's in, and we wouldn't have to grow it for 18 months and then refine it through a long and arduous process. And it's really not, you know, he wasn't doing that to, to flavor his coffee every day. It was to connect with the past. And, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I just love that story. It was really well done. Yeah. Bravo. Thank you. I, I love his story, too. Um, let's cut to a quick little musical interlude, and then we'll be right back chatting with Meredith Moe and Robin Shulman. You're listening to River Serpentine by the Budos Band on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Today's program has been brought to you by AmeriCraft. AmeriCraft and 360 Cookware are proud sponsors of HeritageRadioNetwork.org. AmeriCraft is an American company, and like Heritage Radio Network, they provide the best. Their 360 Cookware is made of the highest quality ingredients, like United States Steel. It is made in the greenest cookware manufacturing plant in the world. AmeriCraft makes great cookware and is focused on improvement. 360 Cookware is their exclusive line. It's a contemporary line of cookware and bakeware intended to let you, the Heritage Radio Network listeners, have a unique cooking experience. Its vapor seal allows food to be cooked in its natural juices, preserving all of the vitamins, minerals, and other nutrients without added water, oils, or fats. 360 Cookware invites you to learn more about how this process works on their website, www.360cookware.com. Every Wednesday at noon, Dorothy Ken Hamilton, founder and CEO of the International Culinary Center, interviews the top chefs in the world on Chef Story. Hear from chefs like Christina Tosi. I'm going to be the best pastry cook this restaurant's ever seen. Francis Malman. Cooking with fires, it's very feminine, it's very fragile. And Jacques Pepin. I was invited to work at the White House for John Kennedy. Learn how the greats become great every Wednesday at 12 p.m. on Chef Story heritageradionetwork.org All right, we're back on Let's Eat In, and today's guests are Meredith Modzaluski Modzaluski? I don't know and Robin <laughs> Shulman, the author of Eat the City, and so tomorrow night is that event where we're ha- uh, Together is throwing the Translit Commuter Book Club meeting where Eat the City will be discussed, Robin will be there, can anyone go to this, Meredith? 
Well, that's the slightly tricky thing is that <laughs> we, um, you know, we've the way that it's set up through Together, it's set up like any other Together event in that we had a goal that we wanted to, to reach. When we reached that goal, the event turned on, cool. which is great. Um, but the the kind of ticket to get in is, is buying the book in advance. Um, and so... Unfortunately, it's not open to everyone tomorrow night, but um, in the future, they will be taking place at Lolita. Um, it's going to be once a month if you go to our website, together.com. Mm-hmm. Um, there'll be information on our blog about the upcoming um, uh, book, which next month is uh, Lori Davis. Um, it's a book all about... Um, it's basically about online dating, mm-hmm. um, and it's a it's a really fun read. It's a light read, but it's, it's, uh, it's for, I think, for anyone who is you know who's ever had an experience on okcupid or match.com or whatever whatever experience you've had um, oh, it'll be relatable so um that'll be our february uh in, in sort of in the the theme of love and valentine's day oh, that'll be nice. our february pick so if you go to our site and um look for Lori davis uh you will be able to find that event and uh, buy your book in advance and come to our yeah, so that's the thing. You have to buy the book in advance. So that kind of shows that the people who are showing up, uh, Robin, this might make a difference um, f- compared to other crowds you've seen mm-hmm. at book readings, is that they've bought the book in advance for sure, and so they probably read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm kind room. of curious to see how the discussion will go because it's very rare that I've had talks with people who have already read mm-hmm. the book. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I'm excited. I think it will be a little bit, you know, deeper and more interesting than some of the other talks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's great. It really allows people to feel like they've that they're, you know, they really have some responsibility over making the event happen. So you know, they've kind of bought in already. They've you know they've made this commitment to. You know, either they've bought a ticket or bought the book, and they're like, "Okay, great, I'm in. Mm-hmm. Like, let's have a great event." So it really helps everyone to feel like somewhat responsible for for a mm-hmm. great event. I don't know about um, other book clubs because I've only been to um, the ones that like my friends kind of haphazardly organize mm-hmm. from time to time, and um, ob- obviously the author usually isn't present ever. Actually, mm-hmm. was present, mm-hmm. um, and so we kind of like you know crit the book a little bit Mm -hmm. and we're talking about what we think could have been stronger what if that happens tomorrow (laughs) night at Lolita I don't know would you welcome that, Robin? I can, I can take it. <laughs> yeah, I'd be interested in hearing people's critiques, too. Um, yeah. yeah, we could talk more about like, the, the reasons that it is the way it is mm-hmm. and what could have been different. Sure. I'm, I'm going to take a stab at that, okay? Sure. At critiquing. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. No, but uh, really, um, one thing I was wondering is that how did you choose the topics, the categories, the chapters um, of food that you did? Because um, there's, a, there's a world of food that is produced in New York City. So um, what if you have this like enthusiast for, I don't know, hunting who, <laughs> who comes to, this, to the book reading and, or book club meeting and says, you know, you should have done this or I don't know. So geese and squirrels. <laughs> was it hard to uh, narrow really it down? It's hard for me to choose the, the categories I did. Um, so if somebody comes with another category I haven't picked, there's a fairly good chance that I've done a little bit of research about it already, and I could talk about it. Um, but I was trying to pick foods that were kind of, in some sense, emblematic of the city's history or something happening in the city today, and also pick uh, foods where there was uh, a particularly interesting story to tell. Right. Um, and and a person who I found who I could t- tell it through. Right. So, um, you know, 
I thought it was very important to talk about fish because New York City is a city of islands and uh, and fishing and the waterfront has been so critical to, to the city over time. Mm-hmm. The story of sugar was something that came up totally unexpectedly. I didn't really anticipate that when I first started. I wouldn't have work thought of that. Book. Yeah. But yeah, I never thought of that. But um, I was looking for people who were growing interesting things. And when I found this man growing sugar cane, I started learning more about the history of sugar and realized that it had to be its own chapter. It wasn't just mm-hmm. going to be a mention in the chapter on mm-hmm. vegetables um, because its its history was pivotal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I came to the, the foods in different ways. Uh, but each one kind of tells a, a different and important chapter, I think, in the, in the way yeah. the city works. Was livestock raising ever on the table for you, and uh, you decided to go against it? Well, that was part of the chapter on meat, so um, right. okay. I do mention livestock raising in that chapter, and I did That's think true. about different ways to approach it, whether to talk more about livestock raising or about butchering, right, um, right. but I ended up incorporating both of those into the same chapter on meat. And it's such an unlikely topic, really, for, for a city like New York. Um, it, it's just, uh, it's so vast, this whole food story that we that we get to learn. And I consider myself as someone who, uh, I, I don't know, like, has been following food for a little while, I guess, and maybe knows more than the average Joe. But I found myself learning so much from this book that, uh, you know, and the history throughout each um, topic was so rich and so dense. Um, how long did it take you to write this book? It took me a long time. <laughs> I first came up with the idea back in 2005, um, mm-hmm. but I actually didn't really pursue it because I was working full-time for the Washington Post at that time. So um, I came back to it in 2009 and started working on it. And then starting in January 2010, I worked full-time on it for two years. Wow. So I, I had done bits of work here and there on it until 2010 and then two full years of research and wow. writing. Wow, that is quite, that is killer. I hope your book tour, you get to enjoy a, lo- a good long book tour and a very successful <laughs> one at that. Yeah, it's been great. I got to travel a bit and talk about the book in different places and it's been a lot of fun. Cool. All right, so um, I think it's about time for the question of of the utmost importance on this show. <laughs> and uh, d- don't be afraid. Um, everyone gets this question. But I'm taking a sort of informal poll, and uh, what do you think would make the perfect date meal, in your opinion? Who wants to go first? Meredith, since you're oh sitting boy. in front of me. <laughs> perfect date meal, meaning that you would make for a date? Um, that you think that would be ideal to you? Okay, but yeah, you for could someone also, to make yeah. for me for a date. Sure, yeah. Um, I think the ideal meal without getting super specific because I hate choosing favorites. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it would have to be something that's not overly fancy because I don't want it to be fussy. I want it to be delicious and Mm -hmm. like very easily enjoyed, but not um, not fussed over. I Mm -hmm. feel like it's it's more about the experience of the tastes and the um, maybe the ingredients, but maybe not so much like a very fussy preparation. So, so no foam. Yeah, no foams. <laughs> Definitely no foams. No, no granitas, please. Um, no, you know. It's like a glorified slush puppy yeah, or something. Yeah, basically. So, okay. um, yeah, I, I would like definitely... I would tend toward like something rustic and hearty and like, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously it's very cold outside. So I'm thinking mm-hmm. of that too. Um, I'd go for like a boragu or something. Ooh. 
<laughs> with pasta, well, right? Pasta yeah. or polenta. That oh, sounds really good right sounds now. Sounds really good. <laughs> yeah. All right. And what do you think, Robin? Wow, that sounds good. <laughs> um, I agree with the, the not fussiness, and because I have a cold right now, <laughs> I, I, it's hard for me to get away from the idea that the perfect date meal for me right now would be a giant bowl of soup. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. um, but uh, ragu sounds wonderful. That sounds good, Meredith. Good idea. Wild boar ragu. Mm. Now, how would we forage for that? (laughs) In New York? Hmm. Locally sourced boars. Let's let's try one of those. (laughs) All right. Well, excellent. I hope you feel better, too, Robin. Um, This flu epidemic, is is that what has gotten you? Yeah, I think it got me last week, and I'm just recovering now. Oh. All right. I've been there. (laughs) Yeah, no. Well, uh, that's great that you could make it um, for this show and also that you're, um, you know, going to come out from under the weather to the book club meeting tomorrow. Yeah, really looking forward to that. (laughs) We'll be glad to have her. We're excited. So thank you, ladies, again so much. Um, Do check out Together. Mm -hmm. That's together, not together, (laughs) dot com. Mm And, um, uh, yeah, check out Meredith Moe at Twitter for mm-hmm. more updates on what they're doing. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Robin Schulman at Twitter. And also, Eat the City is the name of the book. Please get your hands on that soon. Thanks again, mm-hmm. and thanks, everyone, at Heritage. Thanks, Kathy. Thank thanks, you, Robin. Kathy. See you next week. Great to talk. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.